Yo, yo, what up everyone? This is your life coach, Jacob Sokol, and welcome to WTF Should I Do With My Life? You're about to access a roadmap specifically designed for people in our generation, like you and me, who are looking to figure out how to create a life filled with happiness, success, and a deep sense of purpose, while simultaneously dealing with the challenges of today. This interview is with Jonathan Fields. Jonathan is a dad, a husband, an author, a speaker, and a serial wellness industry entrepreneur. His latest book, Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance, was named the number one personal development book of 2011 by 800 CEO Read. In this chat, we're going to talk about why uncertainty holds the key to you being your most brilliant self and how you can tap into that. We're also going to talk about the two components that most commonly comprise failure and why you should give yourself permission to fail. We're going to touch on specific actions we can take to find certainty in uncertainty. This is key. And we're also going to touch on the importance of vulnerability and authenticity. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Right on, dude. Well, I'm so excited to chat with you um, as we were speaking about a little bit before, just because uncertainty is one of the things that I think young adults are going through, experiencing, almost being paralyzed by a little bit, and we've just never been formally educated or informally educated on some of the ways to deal with uncertainty, what it's about. And uh, before we dive too deep into that, I'd love to get started by just introducing you a little bit more to the people who are listening. And I think a really cool way to go about that would be to um, have you share some of what, some of the experience that you went through as a young adult, including maybe what some of the challenges that you faced were, and, uh, and how are you able to deal with those and how those led you to where you are today? Um, yeah, sure. You know, I, I was... Um... I'm kind of like a lifelong entrepreneur, a lifelong creator. I was, uh, when I was a kid, I, um, I, I was an artist also, so I painted a lot. Like I would vanish into my parents' basement for days on end just teaching myself how to paint. And so I ended up back when we actually had album covers. I, I made my, my walking around money in high school actually painting um, jean jackets, painting album covers on jean jackets. And... Um, and I was, you know, so I've always had this mad creative Jones and sort of a desire to be perfect when I create too, which is, comes with a lot of creatives. And, and that evolved into entrepreneurship. I was a lemonade stand kid. And, um, you know, so from an early time, I was just kind of obsessed with the creative process, with creating stuff from nothing. And that, that continued. I started my first business in college. I loved music. And uh, so I started a mobile disc jockey and a sound and lighting company. So we were, you know, sort of like we had people placed around at clubs, at parties. We had giant pieces of equipment that we would move around and uh, grew that business. And that was the first company that I guess officially I sold to, <laughs> to a bunch of incoming <laughs> freshmen. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, for me, it, going to that place where you're, you're trying to build something, one of the things I learned early on is that you can't create anything really cool, anything that matters, anything different. Um, by waiting around and, and waiting for someone to give you permission, by waiting for perfect information to drop from the sky or the perfect moment, none of that stuff exists. You have to sort of cultivate this ability to be willing to do something, to take action, to make decisions when you don't know how it's going to end. And when you have some information and some idea of what's going on, but you don't have as much as you'd like to have, but you still have to act. And I learned early on that um, it's necessary 
and and not only that, but you know, if you want to do anything you know, seriously cool, the uncertainty has to be there, because the only way for it not to be there is if you've already done it before or somebody else has already done it before. In which case, you're just you know you're replicating, you're not creating anymore. Um, and yeah. we're here for more than that. So you know, it's been something I've been dancing with and exploring for a long time, um, and creating in just different arenas for a long time. And, uh, and, and suffered through for a lot of years until really pretty recently when I really sort of did a much deeper dive into how to handle it. Yeah, so let's, let's go back. Let's top in the DeLorean. Let's jump back to the early maybe college years or in your 20s. And I'd, I'd love if you could draw upon perhaps a particular experience or a challenge that um, was, you were plagued with uncertainty in that challenge or that experience and how that felt to you, I mean, at the time and um, kind of what you learned maybe experientially going through that without having the research that you have now to back that up. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, um, you know, anytime you commit my time or your energy or resources, and I think probably in college, you know, a lot of the uncertainty comes from, and maybe in high school and, and just around that time, a lot of it comes from, from um, social experiences. Um, I'm an introvert by nature, which, which doesn't mean that I don't like people or, or I'm like socially incapable. What it means is that I, I love the term that my friend Susan Cain, who wrote the book, The Power of, um, who, uh, who wrote the book Quiet, The Power of Introverts, um, she calls it, it uh, socially selective or selectively social, meaning I actually love people, but I like, I like it in sort of like a small, intimate, engaged setting rather than big, you know, huge conferences. So, um, you know, you're thrown into school, you're thrown into college, um, and you're thrown into big social scenarios. And those aren't situations that I thrive in. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's very uncomfortable because it's just not my MO. It's not my sort of, it doesn't jive well. So you have to learn how to be okay in those situations. And what you learn is that if you start to pull back and monitor everything that you're saying and, you know, shield yourself and censor that um, you essentially start living two different lives. You know, there's the real you who you express in private with a small group of tight friends or sometimes nobody. And then yeah. there's the public you, which is some kind of like fabricated facade because yeah. you're uncomfortable going to that place where you don't know how people are going to respond if you let the real you out. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty in social scenarios. And so many people keep like the most beautiful and amazing, interesting, quirky, geeky, dorky parts of themselves buried because they're not sure how people are going to respond if they let them out. And, you know, I think what, what a lot of people discover once they get a little bit further into life and they just get really tired of holding up those two different, you know, people, the, the real one and the fake one, is yeah. that when they drop the facade and they're willing to go to that place of uncertainty and say, you know what, this is who I am, um, it, all of a sudden they find out that a lot of people won't like it, but then a whole lot of people really will like it, and those are their people. And, you know, I used to do that when I graduated college. Um, so I sold, I sold that company, and then with uh, some of the money, I jumped on a plane and I went to Australia for three months. Huh. And, um, and, I, and I just backpacked. I spent three months scuba diving and backpacking down the east coast of Australia. And I remember to this day um, being in a hostel and kind of like getting into the, um, the, the area where everybody was eating. And you know, there's a room full of like 30 people in a different country <laughs> who I don't know, and I'm an introvert. And I'm like, yeah. okay. I'm like, this is my moment of truth. I either sit in the corner by myself, and that defines the rest of the trip. Or I go down, and like I sit down next to a bunch of people, and I say, hey, and hope that they like me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I made that call. And I remember being like nervous 
as hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, li- but it defined my willingness to take risks and to do things that made that trip, you know, incredible for the next three months. Because it, it, you know, immediately people are like, oh, hey, how you doing? And you know, so it was really empowering. You know, empowering enough that that was a long time ago in my life, and it's still very clear to me. How old were you at that point? Uh, you know, probably 21 or something like that, 22. That's incredible, dude. So what did you learn in that moment of truth? Um, that if you, if you, when you do stuff like that, some people are going to resonate with you and some people won't, but it's so much better than just keeping it buried inside and being by yourself. You know, you've got to take risks with not just the actions that you take and what you're trying to build in life, but with sharing who you genuinely are. You know, Brene Brown talks about this a lot now in her work on vulnerability. You know, and, and she said, you know, one of the greatest um, unified determinants of people thriving, flourishing in life is their willingness to actually be vulnerable, to reveal yeah. who they are and what they're about. Um, and a lot of people feel that that's about weakness. Um, mm-hmm. But fundamentally, your, your willingness to be vulnerable publicly is about strength. It's an incredible strength. Um, and what's funny, she defines vulnerability using basically the almost identical sort of like subtopics that I talk about when I write about uncertainty. So it's really the same thing. Yeah, I was just listening to your interview with her again for the second time today, um, prepping for this chat. So absolutely love her work. And as you're speaking, I'm, I'm thinking back to, you know, when I was in that point also being 21 years old, it wasn't just that I was afraid to be um, shown for who I was and afraid to reveal myself, but there was also a large amount of information that I just didn't know about myself. Like, I didn't really know who I was. I hadn't found myself. I was in this, you know, identity quest phase of who am I and and what am I here to do? And I think that could be even more terrifying sometimes because at least when when you know something about yourself, you know what you can stand for, you know your values, you know what you give a shit about, you know in a sense what you're here to do. But so much of being a young adult is really about figuring out well, who is my authentic self? You know, what am I here for? And I think that ability to um, connect at that point and come out of isolation, come out of, okay, I'm going to figure this out by myself or I'm ashamed that I don't know this and, you know, go to that metaphorically and literally go to that table of 30 people you don't know and say, what's up? Well, fuck it. Let me give this a shot is, uh, is something that in a sense we all need to do at, at some point in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to me, your 20s are about figuring out which way is up, you know, both in the world and, and inside your internal world. And um, I think a lot of us don't ever do that, actually. I think, you know, the classic midlife crisis um, is, is largely about the fact that most people blow past that and go mm-hmm. down just a, a route that's predefined or ordained by sort of like society on a larger scale. And then when you get to a point in their lives where um, they just, it's burning them up so, so much inside, they kind of step back and say, okay, I, I got to figure out who I really am, what makes me come alive, you know, why I'm here and what I want to do. And the challenge in that is, you know, you've got to do that at some point in your life, but the more responsibilities you get, the further into the life you get, the more you, you sort of, um, the harder it is to do because um, it's much harder to navigate when you've got a lot of people looking to you to be the stable person in their world. Yeah, right on, dude. Such powerful stuff. So I'd, I'd like to transition a little bit into um, some of the uncertainty stuff and just looking at what's going on and with my peers and people who are a little bit younger and a little bit older than me, it feels like as a society we're 
we're lacking direction and we're lost in a sense. And pop culture tells us one thing, and I think we buy into that for a while, and then at some point, intuitively, we just re, you know we just kind of it comes to the surface like that is not the answer. Hopefully, you know, sooner or later. And um, but we're we're really looking for direction, I think, and we're lost and uh, and we're unsure of ourselves and essentially even doubt ourselves just because we don't know ourselves very well or even if we do, we don't know, you know, what's realistic, what's unrealistic, what what am I capable of in life? So um, Tim Ferriss has an awesome quote that uh, I, I was reading as I was prepping for this and he says, most people will choose unha- unhappiness over uncertainty. And so mm-hmm. I would love to just take a high-level view of um, the question, you know, why is uncertainty so terrifying to us? Yeah, and um uh, there's a biological reason. I mean, there's a biological reason that expands into something much bigger. You know, we, we now know through fMRI studies, which are studies and functional MRI studies that actually watch your brain as you're responding to different scenarios, that um, when you're faced with the need to make a decision or take an action that moves you closer to uncertainty or moves you into a place of uncertainty, um, one of the centers in your brain, the amygdala, which is you know sort of in, implicated in in fear and anxiety and fight or flight, um, lights up. Um, it becomes much more active. That sends chemical signals throughout your body that make you physically uneasy. They're the signals that prepare you to run from the lion in the jungle. But um, on a day-to-day basis, they also make you really uncomfortable. You know, when you run, when you exert yourself physically, really aggressively for a couple minutes the chemicals dissipate and you come back to sort of like a, you know, status quo. But um, when yep. they're just shooting all the time in response to different scenarios, it's really, it makes you feel physically uneasy and you, you don't want to feel that way anymore. So you do things to feel okay, to feel calmer, to feel easier. And that generally involves one of two things. Either you back away from the scenario that's making you uneasy, which almost always is also the scenario that carries the greatest opportunity. Or you race, you race so quickly through it just because you want to get, get it over that you miss all these incredible opportunities and possibilities along the way. So there's this um, actual you know, chemical and neurological um, basis for this. You know, the interesting question is, well, if we're kind of soft-wired to respond that way by the time we reach adulthood or late teens just through experience in life, um, can you train yourself? to respond differently? Can you kind of rewire your brain or rewire your response so that when you feel that unease, because you're always going to feel it to a certain extent, you translate it differently. You see it as a signpost of opportunity and you know that it's going to be okay. And um, and you find ways to get much more comfortable and feel much more ease and lean into it because you know there's amazing stuff on the other side. Yeah, dude, that's, that's so cool. And, you know, I can relate back to my experience growing up in a household that, I mean, uncertainty just wasn't something that was glorified or glamorized, right? Like we, we didn't take risks because we needed to pay the bills and make sure that we got, you know, we got the kids, me and my sister went got through school all right and that um, basically the responsibilities got handled and it just seemed almost irresponsible to take risks that we were uncertain of unless we really needed to. Um, so really what we were trying to do so much was diminish the possibility of uncertainty. And it's a very counterintuitive thing that I'm realizing in just the last couple of years and stepping out of that, stepping out of that line of what my family wanted me to do, of what society wanted me to do, of what pop culture, you know, was um, bombarding me with messages about what I should be doing, about what it means to be a man, right? And um, the gender role of being masculine and stepping out of that sometimes. Um, and there's, 
so, so I, I found in my own life that there's this really important role of uncertainty, and you started to talk about how it leads to opportunity. Um, so if, I'd love to just expand on that a little bit for people who are listening and, they, and they're, they're hearing, you know, how uncertainty can be so terrifying and they're just not really convinced yet that it's actually worth um, running to it or through it or, or going through it opposed to running away from it. So what, what is some of the just kind of huge um, big bullet points or um, reasons that, you know, uncertainty is so important for us? Yeah, so I mean, what what's uncertainty? So when you break it down, um, it's fundamentally scenarios where there is risk of loss, where there's um, potential exposure to judgment um, and and failure, um, and where you, you've got to take action where you don't know how it's going to end. You don't have enough information to know how it's going to happen. So when you actually break it down and you look at those three things, so so you know uncertain information but with the need to take action, risk of loss, and that could be money, it can be reputation, it can be time, like, you know, whatever it is, and exposure to judgment and failure. Those are the identical elements um, to disruption and opportunity. So huh. there's, there's no opportunity that exists that's significant without risk of, of loss because there's no possibility of gain without also having an equal and opposite risk of loss. So if you want a really big win in business, in life, socially, then you've also got to take a risk. So if you want to go up and introduce yourself to somebody who you just feel like, you know, they may be the perfect person for you, you know, if they are that potentially good for you, there's also, you know, you're, you risk being rejected by somebody. You know, if you want to create a new business or test an idea for a business, and you, you know, if you want to, if you, you know, it has a tiny bit of potential, maybe it's going to make a small impact in your you know, maybe there's a tiny bit of risk with it, but if it's something that truly has the potential and the opportunity to change your world and potentially to change the world, then it has to carry along with it also the risk of pretty substantial failure. There, there, there are two sides of a coin. So risk and, and opportunity um, are always, they always travel in lockstep. Risk of loss, hmm. risk, risk of failure. Um, and failure is really, you know, the fear of failure is really just risk of loss plus fear of judgment when you break it down. So what we know is that, you know, so there's got to be risk of loss if you want opportunity for gain. And at the same time, one of the biggest things that stops people from exposing themselves to that risk of loss or risk of failure um, is fear of being judged. You know, there's a huge social context to, to taking in or, or to not taking action or not making decisions in the face of uncertainty and taking those risks, a lot of people don't do it because they're terrified that if they choose wrong and they fail and it's public, they're going to be judged or humiliated. Um, yeah. And, and that literally shuts people down. So there, you kind of break down these elements, but what you also know is that nothing great ever comes from sitting and waiting for opportunities where there's no risk of loss, there's no exposure to judgment, and there's only certain information because those opportunities don't come. There's no such thing. You know, so, so if you look at, okay, I want to do something powerful in the world, or I just want to do something cool today, yeah. you know, anytime there's an opportunity, it will be connected with risk of loss, uncertainty, and exposure to judgment and failure. So if you want to do something, if you want to just keep embracing opportunity and you know, the, the chance to do great things in the world, to create great things in the world, 
or build great relationships. You know, the one, you, you don't want to run from these things, even though they make you feel uneasy. What you want to do is learn how to um, be okay with them. Dude, so I'd, I'd love to circle back around to that, but before we do, uh, so much goodness here, and there, I think there's something so incredible. There's like a paradox of uncertainty where on, on one hand, it can be totally terrifying, and on the other hand, like you're saying, it's, it can be incredibly rewarding, and that, that's where the possibilities for life exist, out in that uncertainty. Um, and sometimes we don't, we don't know, like you said, right? There's not enough information. So for, for young adults, for people like me, people like us listening to this call, um, I know I was terrified. I was, I was working in an uh, IT job doing everything I should be doing. You know, I had enough money to basically pay for dinners, get fancy clothing, have a motorcycle, have a car. I was 24 years old, and I had, I had made it. You know, I'd kind of proven to my, the world and myself that I was, um, I was successful, but inside it was something was just eating me up, like, like I'm off purpose. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And there was a deep intuitive knowing, but I didn't know what the hell to do. Right? I just knew I was mm-hmm. like having an allergic reaction to my life on the inside and on the outside trying to pretend it was all good. And I, I just needed to step into that uncertainty, not knowing what the next step was. And what's, what's incredible, three years later, it's about three years later now, um, I'm interviewing people like yourself. I, I interviewed um, one of my happiness heroes less than a week ago, a guy named Tal Ben-Shahar, who taught sure. the most popular class at Harvard of all time. Like, I couldn't have – you're talking to a 24-year-old kid at that time who didn't know what positive psychology was, didn't know what conscious capitalism was, didn't know what any of these really cool things that I care so much about now are. But I, I really needed to go into that intuitive place of uncertainty. It wasn't even so much of a logical, like, trying to – and, you know, come up with this dope strategy of how everything is going to work, but just, like, following my heart and, and like, the truest sense of it where, like, this is where I need to go. And, uh, and that's just led me to places, you know, Joseph Campbell would say, you know, uh, walls or doors open up where there were no doors before. So um, just right on, dude. I'm, I'm loving learning more about the science of how this works. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's an uncomfortable place um, to be, but that's where... It's where all the good stuff in life happens, you know, on the fray is where all the cool stuff unfolds. And, you know, you were talking about parents also sort of before. And, and fundamentally, you know, so I'm a dad, you know, and and I want my daughter to be happy. I want her to experience joy in relationships. But even more than that, I want her to be safe. So I, yeah. totally, I totally get it. So you look at your parents and you're like, okay, you know, fundamentally <laughs> what they really want for you is to be happy. But even more than that, they want you to be safe. And that drives yeah. sort of this, this concern where it's like, I want you to be happy, and that means I want you to be fulfilled. That means taking risks. But I also want you to be safe, and that means not taking risks. So hmm. there's, a, like, you know, as, an, as a parent raising kids, you know, I, I get it now. You know, you're really conflicted. And so I find myself with my daughter, um, you know, kind of pulling back and saying, okay, I want her to be safe, but, you know, I need, I need to – foster in her the understanding that she can go out into the world and take risks and um and do cool things and just trust that she's going to be okay um so you know like it, i totally get where it comes from and especially you know maybe your parents parents were a depression era generation where the notion of happiness or joy it, it wasn't even on the table it was like keep a roof over the family's head and put food on the table and if we can do that like you know that's yeah. all we're entitled to so um you know but i think like right now uh, you know, that sort of like next generation is born into a world where there's, there's, you don't have to go looking for disruption in this world right now. It, it is. I mean, we're in, on a global scale, on a political scale, on an economic scale, there's mass disruption. 
you can respond to it in one of two ways. You can run and hide and hope that it wasn't that way. Or you can say, okay, here's what I know. Anytime there's disruption, there's opportunity. So my job now mm-hmm. is to be the disruptor and not the disrupted and find the opportunity and figure out how to lean into it and, and create genius. Yeah, man, that's that's so powerful. I interviewed a lady named Pilar Gerissimo who has a magazine called Experience Life, and one of the most profound takeaways that I got from that chat was she said that she feels like some of the best business opportunities for the future um, will be for people who are, in a sense, saving the world. And like on one hand, when you look at the future, you look at what's happening with the environment, global warming, or you look at some of the just big uh, bureaucratic systems that aren't working, um, and 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 you kind of you have this. It can be really um, depressing in a sense to look at that. And and I kind of brought this up to her, and she said, "Yeah, that that could be true on one hand, but on the other hand, it's it creates all this meaning. You know, like as a generation, we can really step into the role of let's do something about this and have immensely meaningful lives, and at the same time, create incredible businesses around fixing problems that like, really need to be addressed in the world." Yeah, I mean, it's all about the frame that you bring to the scenario. You know, you can choose to tell different stories about it. You may not be able to change a particular circumstance, but you can see it through a different lens. You can tell a different story about it. And, you know, that lens and that story is generally what either disables or empowers you, not the circumstance itself. You know, like, God, there, granted, there are horrendous circumstances. There are, you know, there are children in parts of the world that are living in horrendous you know, circumstances without food or shelter. And I'm not going to go and tell you that that's all about mindset. You know, if they didn't want to suffer, they wouldn't be suffering. You know, that's, they're suffering. Yep. But we're blessed. Yep. The fact that you and I are talking in this conversation right now means that we are part of the world that is incredibly fortunate. And we have, you know, even though we may suffer and we have angst and, and deal with certain things, <laughs> you know, we're, we're in a place where um, the worst that we go through is capable of being reframed through a different story or a different lens and turned into tremendous opportunity. Yeah. Have you ever had to battle or figure out how to work with this this reality or the sense that you were born into such a privileged place in life? Like you got handed a pair of aces, you know, in, in as far as resources in life, as far as being born, living in New York City, um, coming from a family that could put food in your mouth and shelter over your head. I, I, that's something that I think we're going through as a generation also is this kind of culture of, of privilege. Like a couple of generations ago, the challenges they faced were, how do we feed the freaking kids? How do we escape genocide? Or how do we, how do we surprise, uh, survive the depression? <laughs> and the big kind of quest for a lot of us in this generation is, is it's an internal quest. It's an existential quest. You know, what is my purpose? It's like Fight Club, right? Like he, he says, like, we have no great war. Our great war is our lives. You know, we're looking for purpose. Um, have, you, have you had to deal with that? Do you think on some level of, like, just, you know, I was, how, did I, how do I navigate this culture of being born into um, a culture of privilege? Or, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you manage that? Yeah, you know, I I think you're born into what you're born into, and you own the fact that, you know, you do have certain possibilities that maybe other people in the world don't have, and um, to the extent that you can give back, and, and, you know, and not necessarily give back, but give forward, too, you know, to the extent Mm -hmm. that you can take whatever's given you and and, um, lean into it and, and offer forward what you, you know, whatever benefits you have and create opportunities and possibilities for people who aren't born with the same um, you know, you try and do that, but you know, at the same time, um, you know, it's funny. I have one, 
when I was in college, um, I used to, in the summers, I went out to the east end of Long Island in the Hamptons, which is, you know, a place of, like, insane privilege. Yeah. And, yep. um, and I, I would just rent a room in a house and paint houses. So I wasn't, you know, the kid with the money. Um, I was somebody who was just painting houses to, to pay my bills. And um, so I didn't come from money. You know, I, I, I worked for what I, what I got, and I always have. But um, the roommate that I was with this one summer, um, his family actually owned the house that we were in, and the family were one of the biggest developers on the East End, real estate developers that had you know, like astonishing wealth. Um, halfway through the summer, he wanted to be a writer, and he was reading that all the greatest writers in the world suffered immensely. You know, they had nothing. They were living on the street. They were uh, addict, addicted to, you know, all sorts of things. And um, they had nothing. They were penniless. And, and he got into his head, well, you know, if I want to be a great writer, then I need to suffer. But here's somebody who comes from extraordinary privilege. So he's like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go create, like, you know, I'm going to manufacture suffering in my life. So, you know, like, rent, you know, go, went and bought a beat-up old um uh, you know, like car and drove it out to the middle of the country and just was living on barely any money. I'm like, that's not real suffering, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but also just the idea that you have to experience suffering to bring anything good to life. Um, you know, like I, I reject that. I think you've got to engage fully with the plus and the minus. And yeah, if you come from a certain amount of privilege, then I think, you know, you, you step back and you say, you know, there's a sense of oneness in the universe and you don't, what, however you define that, you know, you can call it God, you can call it the universe, you can call it, you know, uh, the Kasich field, whatever you come mm-hmm. from. Um, and that there's a sense of responsibility to humanity, I think, to, um, to, to be good to other people and to try and bring people forward if you're, you know, more forward in, than they may be at any given point in time. But I don't, I also don't feel like there's any reason to apologize for, um, you know, who your parents were in life you know we all get born yep. into certain lots plus and minus and then your job is to you know to serve and to give back and to to create and do whatever wherever you you know you arrive um to just do what you can with what you have yeah i've never heard it put like that this idea of giving forward that's that's really cool and and as you're speaking about the universe i'm and I'm just looking at the larger picture, and the universe itself is so mysterious and so full of uncertainty. Um, yet, paradoxically, at the same time, it, it feels, you know, I think a lot of people do find certainty through a spiritual path or, or spiritual practice or having faith in the way the universe works. Is that true for you in some way? They, I mean, I don't look to it as a source of certainty for me. I look to it as a source of connectedness, um, oneness. But but I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the reasons why people turn to faith at times of uncertainty and disruption is because they're looking for somebody to tell them what to do. They're looking for um, rules, and most faiths have a set of rules that you live by, and saying this is how you, this is this is what you do, and this is a belief system that will serve as an anchor, so that you're not entirely um, relative in a world that's kind of floating around. Like people want a place to touch stone. They want a, yeah. a set of a set of rules and ideals and people to say, okay, this is what you do. And so a lot of people turn to faith both for that and for um, the connection to other people who they can find community with because that creates a, a certain sense of connectedness where they feel like I'm going to be more okay if I can find people like me. 
So, I, I mean, to me, I think that's what a, a lot of what drives people to faith in times of crisis is um, is a rule book to tell you what to do mm-hmm. and what not to do and how to feel and a group of people who follow the same rules. So there's like when everything else is scattered about and that, you know, there's nothing which is, which is, you know, touching the earth. If there's a place where you can touch stone, it's, it's like a keel. Um, and I think it's, my sense is that's why a lot of people turn to it, you know, even if they've had no connection to faith before, you know, I'm not, I'm not an overtly religious person. I'm a pretty spiritual person though. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily, you know, go deep down the rabbit hole of any particular rule set or dogma, but, uh, you know, I do believe that we're connected. Yeah, right on. And I would encourage, you know, anybody listening to this chat to, of course, you know, see what works for you. I've got one set of experiences and Jonathan's got another. And I think ultimately um, that we have to experiment. We have to see what works for us. And for me, I've, I've found actually when I'm faced with uncertainty that having a knowledge base of kind of who I am and not a certain knowledge of self helps me stay grounded in that uncertainty so that I can walk out into the world and, and do something I've never done before and that and that part be uncertain, but kind of inside at least know, okay, this is this is what I stand for, this is what I believe in, this is what I'm good at, um, this is what I'm passionate about, this is what I'm committed to serving. And uh, although my situation may be unknown, I, I can find comfort in knowing who I am and what I care about at that moment. And, and also kind of what my fundamental practices are, what the things are that I know I need to do that when I do on a consistent basis, on a daily basis, I'm going to be able to show up at my best in that uncertainty. Um, so I'm curious kind of from your standpoint, how you're able to find some certainty in uncertainty and what are some of the actions that you think people can take you know, what are some of the actions you think people can take in that space of uncertainty when they're, you know, when they feel like, oh, shit, here comes the uncertainty. Do I run away from it or do I go towards it? What do I do? How can I deal with that? Yeah, I mean, and it's a great question. And it actually kind of wraps on to the last one because the, the other thing that I didn't mention about faith or religion is that um, a huge part of that and a huge part of it's why it's effective is because almost every faith is built around ritual. Um, mm. and, that's, and that's one of the things that a lot of people can do. So a lot of the greatest creators, the greatest writers, the greatest entrepreneurs, the greatest CEOs in the world and, you know, and artists are insanely ritualized in their lives. Um, so they, they, you know, and, and it happens on two levels. One is in the work itself. But what I've seen, and I spent a lot of time interviewing people for the last book, is that um, what's much more pervasive is that people um, create huge amount of ritual in their non-working lives. So almost everything, any, any decision or action that can be taken or that can be ritualized or automated, um, they'll automate. So you, you take somebody who, um, you know, like Seth Godin actually, like will eat the exact same meals every single day. You know, like Steve Jobs <laughs> wore the exact same thing all the time. I know a lot of people that wear the exact same thing. They have the same food all the time. They listen to the same music, the same stations. Um, so they'll take all these things throughout the day and they'll do them the same way. It happens in faith that way also. You know, a lot of people, there's a huge amount of ritual in faith. And a lot of that, people, um, the repetition um, gives people what I call certainty angers. They know that you know, these 25 times during, throughout the day, I know there are going to be these little touch points where I know what's coming next. And it's like you can drop all these little certainty angles. So you have all these little moments in the day where you know what's coming next. It's certain. You're okay with it. You don't have to think about it or worry about it. And that gives you this sort of like, like sort of an ongoing sense of, okay, I, I can keep touching stone. 
And it's almost like you're dropping these anchors that allow you to float higher up um, into the into the ether and into that place to be creative and to do the the riskier things, knowing that you have those. Um, a second thing happens, which is kind of interesting, is that um, the more you take somebody something from sort of a, an individual behavior and you repeat it over and over and over, so it becomes a ritual or a habit. You actually move the place that that is processed from your brain, from sort of the frontal part of your brain where it's conscious and it takes a lot of energy, back mm-hmm. into the back parts of your brain where it becomes automated and takes less energy, and it frees up more of your sort of creativity and cognitive function to do really interesting work and be more creative and to take bigger risks. So it literally kind of, when you automate stuff, when you ritualize, it changes where in your brain those behaviors um, consume energy and happen, and it, it frees you up to be able to um, to take more risks and to do more things and to be more creative, which is kind of interesting. So, so ritualizing or creating these certainty anchors is one, is a pattern that that I actually I didn't I didn't set out looking for, but as I started to interview all these different people, I started to notice this popping up over and over and over, and then I realized this is a really pervasive pattern in people who tend to really lean into uncertainty on a high level uh, on a daily basis. But um, two other things that, that um, will not reduce uncertainty in any way, shape, or form, and in a way you don't want to, because remember, the uncertainty is where the opportunity is. Uncertainty is possibility. So you kill, yeah. the, you, you kill the uncertainty, you kill possibility. So you don't actually want to reduce it. You want to learn how to be okay with it. So two yeah. huge two things which are, are hugely effective at allowing you to be much more okay with it. And a lot of people don't want to hear this because they want to hear something fancier or different. But the mm-hmm. two single most powerful force multipliers for mindset and allowing you to go to that place are meditation and exercise. Um, you know, and, and we there's now so much research on this. It literally has the ability to rewire your brain. And it it in the face of Uncertainty, which leads to anxiety and fear and frustration and angst, um, meditation and exercise will, will counter those really, really strongly. It's almost like creating a reset mechanism in your brain to bring you back to a calm place. And at the same time, it also opens up the way that your brain functions so that you can actually create on a higher level. So it's got like this, this um, two-sided benefit in making you much calmer, happier, more relaxed, dissipating anxiety and fear and stress. And then at the same time, freeing up all this cognitive function so that you can create cooler things and do, you know, and, and bring more interesting things to life in the world. So, um, you know, I think those th- three things are, are, can be really powerful, um, which is ritualizing and then bringing exercise and meditation and building them over time as a daily practice. You know, there are plenty of other things that you can do, but those three are um, tremendously powerful tools. Yeah, that, that's incredible. So for everybody listening, I mean, we just got insight into what some of the most powerful things we can do are. These are this is not just theory. This is like action steps that you can ritualize. You can actually ritualize the meditation practice or ritualize the exercise practice and um, double the benefits there. And so yeah. this is a, an incredible place to start right here, right now, today. You don't have to wait. Just, it doesn't cost money. This is something you can figure out how to do. Um, again, today, right now, make it part of your life, make it part of, uh, of who you are. Um, I've committed to meditating pretty much every day for the rest of my life. Um, I'm, I'm about three years in. I think I've missed maybe five days, and I don't have any plans to stop. It's not that um, saying I'm going to do it every day, kind of, but it's just like I don't see a reason to stop. You know, why? Why stop? 
So, um, so I want to honor your time, and I also want there's one big kind of looming question that I also wanted to ask you, and it's about this idea of failure. We spoke about it a little bit before, and I, I can just see so many people listening to this conversation and saying, "Wow, that all makes sense." And then when it comes time to go take that action, just being terrified of that failure, of you know that risk of loss, or fear of judgment, and uh, and I, I would love to lead people. Um, with with an idea of kind of how can we give our per, ourselves the permission to fail? How can we deal with the situation of, okay, now is game time. I listen to this interview. I'm really fired up. I'm inspired to go do something, but holy shit, what are they going to think of me? Am I good enough? What happens if I fail? So how can we how can we address that issue right now? Yeah. So I'll offer two strategies and, and invite people to explore them at whatever level they're comfortable. Um, one is to chunk it down, chunk failure down, take tiny steps. So instead of saying this is a really big thing that I want to do, um, look at it and say, okay, how can I break this down into its essential elements, into the smallest steps that I can, um, figure out what the big, you know, if there's one giant leap of faith, what are the hundred smaller leaps of faith that, that, that I can take along the way that will validate or invalidate pieces of it? And then um, what actions can I take to invalidate or validate these things so that instead of saying, let me just go all in on this massive thing, think to yourself, how can I break this down into little tiny pieces and test elements of it along the way so that I feel, okay, I'm still taking risks. I'm still, you know, there's still a risk of loss. I still may be judged. I still may fail, but I may fail on a much smaller scale or I may win on a much smaller scale. And over time, as you start to get, you know, if you have these small failures, it may tell you how to correct course to get the win, or it may just tell you that you're off base and you shouldn't keep going. But also, if you have to start to have the wins, or you correct course and you start to have these smaller wins, the smaller wins start to cascade into more confidence and more willingness to actually take more risk and lean into it and take more action. So, um, you know, so what you do is you're essentially you're taking it and you're, you're chunking it down you're breaking the risk and the judgment into tiny, tiny steps and testing them a piece at a time. And that can be a really effective process. So that's one thing to do. Um, the, the other thing is to, to do reframe um, on a bigger level and say, okay, what most people do is they ask the question, what if I fail? And then they create a doomsday scenario and they hit spin and they obsess about it. And that shuts them down because that becomes the only likely outcome to them. And if you do that, it's, it's guaranteed to shut you down. So what I would invite um, you know, your listeners to do is ask that question. It's important to ask, what if I fail? And it's important to say, okay, let me paint a picture of it. But then you've got to add a couple of other questions. And those other questions are, how will I recover? Paint an equally vivid picture of that. What you start to find is that it may hurt, but most things are recoverable. And very often when you do recover, you are so much better armed to succeed at a whole different level the next time you do something. Then add two more questions. This, the, the other one is, what if I do nothing? Meaning, what if I just keep going and don't make any changes here? What if I never take the chance? Very often, that reality is, is the scariest reality, especially if you're not in a happy place. And then paint an equally vivid picture of that. And then the final thing is, what if I succeed? What would my life look like? What would my world look like? Paint that picture equally vividly. And now what you can do is instead of just basically painting the doomsday scenario and assuming that's the likely thing and having it shut you down, you've got your different scenarios that are equally vivid and you have sort of like a much better data set um, to look at it and say, okay, I'm not just going to focus on the failure possibility. I'm going to say, you know what, 
there is a possibility of failure, but it's largely diminished by, because now I know how I re would recover and how much better I would be armed when I recover. And doing nothing is actually a really scary scenario. And the scenario of success, I'm incredibly pulled to that. I want that. You know, I aspire to that really powerfully. And it allows you to tell a different story. It allows you to tell a story about empowerment um, and frame the risk against the opportunity to succeed instead of just the, the possibility of failing. Yeah, dude, that's incredible. I'm, I'm so stoked that we got to have this chat and uh, help spread some of your wisdom to the people who are listening. I just know how uh, immensely powerful and useful it is. And there's one question I've been wrapping up most of these chats with, and I'd love to ask it to you. And the question is, what is the number one thing that you now know that you wish you knew as a young adult? Ooh, good question. Um, <laughs> I think it's I think it's honestly that um, who you are really matters, um, and not who you're perceived to be in society, but who you really are. You know, you're the the dork, the geek, the artist, the freak, whoever it is inside. Um, building around that, bringing it out, allowing yourself to to build your life around that and honor it and um, aligning who you are in the world with who you are inside um, is, is massively important in your ability to be okay and to thrive and to flourish in the world. Dude, <laughs> you just gave me chills. Um, right on, man. So I would love to, um, again, one is just thank you so much for sh taking the time to share with us, dude. Um, immensely, immensely grateful. And would love to leave people with a path that they can continue to follow you on. So I know you're up to some amazing goodness right now. How can Pete continue to you know, engage in your work and um, follow you and keep in touch with you? Sure. I mean, uh, the, my focus these days is uh, is a project called Good Life Project, which is just at goodlifeproject.com, where uh, we're on a mission to inspire, educate, and support um, people in the quest to live well and give well in the world. Okay. Right on, dude. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So let's take a look at some of my favorite big ideas from this chat. Big idea number one, uncertainty is a must. If you want to do anything seriously cool, the uncertainty has got to be there. Because if it's not, it means that either you or someone else has already done it, and then you're just replicating, you're not actually creating. Big idea number two is uncertainty and opportunity. Uncertainty is fundamentally scenarios where there's loss of risk, potential exposure to judgment and failure, and where you need to take action and you're unsure of the outcome. But here's the thing. Those are the same exact elements that make up opportunity. There's no opportunity for gain unless there's risk for loss. Risk and opportunity are really two sides of the same coin. Actually, when we think about it, failure equals risk of loss plus fear of judgment. Big idea number three, meditation and exercise. As Jonathan says, the two biggest things you can do to help cultivate your mindset for dealing with uncertainty are meditation and exercise. Personally, as I said, I've meditated pretty much for the last three years every single day, and exercise is a fundamental core practice of mine to be able to show up in the world the way that I need to in order to take on projects like this. They keep me grounded in my uncertainty. And if you're not currently rocking at least one of those two things, I'd ask you why not, and when's a good time to start? 
Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast, and I'm excited to deepen our relationship, to get to know each other better over time, and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here, and we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other in living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on Facebook, and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com. Sounds simple, and it is. Thankyoujacob.com, and uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.